chapter 3, as we continue our series through the book of Luke. Luke 3, verses 1 to 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria, Tricontus, and Lysantis, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, uh, in these few moments, we pray that you would take them. We pray that you would uh, make them meaningful. As we have already prayed, Lord, uh, would you bring comfort to your people? Father, help us as we wrestle through these words of John that seem really hard and really harsh. And yet, Luke tells us that these things are good news. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Americans love trendy. Whether it's the latest TikTok dance or the latest uh, gadget, we are attracted to trendy. 
We've just come out of a season where we've been obsessed with finding the good, perfect, trendy gift. Now, to be fair, sometimes trends stick. I wish I still had the Hasbro uh, Death Star Wars Death Star that I got in 1978 for Christmas from my parents. However, most of the time, the trends vanish as quickly as they come. The American Evangelical Church is not immune to fads either, though we should be. Several months ago, I wrote a piece for Practical Shepherding in which I noted the trends for doing church that we've witnessed over the past 40 years. There's been the Willow Creek trend, the purpose-driven trend, the emerging emergent trend, the A29 trend, and now we find ourselves in the midst of a kind of satellite franchise church trend. It would appear that evangelical Christians love a trend as much as the next person. In our text for this morning, Dr. Luke introduces us to a great reality of the Christian faith. God's long-awaited messenger has come into the world, the one that we've been waiting 400 years to come and to make ready the way for God's Messiah. He's come into the world, and the reception with which he is met is mixed at best. That brings us to our big idea then this morning. It's on page five in your bulletin. You also see it on the screen in front of you. The big idea is this. Matters of eternal significance are rarely met with worldly acclaim. Matters of eternal significance are rarely met with worldly acclaim. Three points we want to make this morning. First, we see Dr. Luke setting the stage. We see Luke setting the stage. Once again, as a man of letters, Luke is concerned with giving us some historical context. He tells us who is reigning as Caesar at this time. It's the second emperor of Rome, a man, a man named Tiberius. He lets us know who is the governor. It's Pontius Pilate. We're going to meet him again at the end of Luke's gospel. He tells us about the Tetrarchs. In other words, the, the Jews who were serving as kind of underlings to the Romans, they were kind of kings, but kind of not. It sort of let the Jews think that maybe they weren't completely being uh, ridden roughshod by Rome. And so we're told, of the Herod, we're told of Herod. We're told of his brother Philip. We're told of Licinius. And then we're told who the high priest is. And it's interesting, there's not... One, as the Bible commands, but Luke tells us there were two, Annas and Caiaphas. And by the way, at this point, Annas and Caiaphas were not chosen by lot from among God's people. It was a political appointment. See, the Romans understood that controlling the religion of Israel was a good way to help sort of control the masses. And we're tempted to think when we look at this, that this is where everything is going on that's going to be significant. And yet what's really significant is what we read at the end of verse 2. It's not the people who are in power. It's not the people who think they control the lives of folks uh, within the, their sphere of influence. 
No, the really impressive, the really powerful, the really meaningful thing is coming to us at the end of verse 2. And here it is. The word of God came to John. The word of God came to John. Friends, Luke is here telling us that just like the prophets of the Old Testament, God is sending his word, he's giving his word that will then be spoken to his people by his servant. We read it this morning in our Sunday school class in Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. We see it again in Isaiah. We will see it in Ezekiel. We will see it in Amos. We will see it in Hosea. We will see it in Joel. In other words, Luke wants to let us know that God, after 400 years of silence, is yet again giving his word to his prophet. And that's what he wants us to pay attention to. Not who's the governor, not who is Caesar, not who are the high priests, but what really matters is that God's word has come yet again to his prophet and will then go to his people. See, it's tempting to think when you read this that, uh, I mean, I was taught, well, he's showing us that this is historically accurate, and that's true. But he's also showing us, uh, in 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 an interesting way, he's showing us that what really matters isn't necessarily the stuff we think always matters. What matters are not these guys who think they are the movers and shakers, who think they are the powers that be. Now, this is all occurring, we think, Roughly A.D. 30, maybe A.D. 33, depending on how you want to date it. Luke's gospel, Luke and Acts were written, uh, we believe, before A.D. 70. And we believe that because in A.D. 70, Jerusalem gets destroyed. And Luke doesn't mention it at all, either in the gospels, nor does he mention it in the book of Acts. And so let's say that roughly 30 to 35 years have passed from when these events happen to the end of, uh, to when Luke writes his gospel and when he writes Acts. Do you know where all those names were? Do you know what happened to Tiberius Caesar in the 30 years in which, uh, between when this happened and when Luke writes? Well, he's dead. There's a new emperor. Nero is his name. In fact, by the end of the book of Acts, we're going to understand that's who Paul has to deal with. Pontius Pilate, not only did Pilate make a complete mess of the handling of of Jesus and his crucifixion, but later uprisings that came up, Pilate uh, was either too soft or he was way too firm. He lost the confidence of Rome and so was sent off into exile in Turkey and we kind of never hear from him again. The Herods die. One of them dies quite dramatically. We're going to read about it later in the book of Acts. Annas and Caiaphas, we know that theirs was an appointed time. And so uh, by the time Luke is writing both his gospel and the book of Acts, Annas and Caiaphas are no more. 
in the 40 years in which it takes from these events to happen for Luke to write these things, all the people that thought of themselves as being significant and being important, all the people who want you to believe that they're what matters, we're being told that what really matters is that the word of God has come to John and that it's in the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah the prophet. God told his people 400 years ago that he would send a prophet just like John. And he did. It's easy, isn't it, to get confused about the things that are permanent, the things that are important, the things that are really of significance. There are lots of things, and one writer put it this way, we live in the midst of the tyranny of the urgent. And yet, oftentimes, what is urgent is not necessarily truly significant. It's not eternal. Several years ago, there was a, an, a feature article written in the Louisville newspaper. It was a profile of a local church pastor. I would have ignored it, except uh, it was a pastor that I happened to know, and uh, we had some family who went to his church, and uh, it, was, it was on the front page of the Louisville newspaper, and it showed this uh, individual uh, as the pastor of this church sitting at his desk, and behind him, and this is what he wanted everybody to see, behind him were three computer monitors in which he was tracking uh, the, the stock holdings of the church. So what had happened is uh, a lady in the congregation had died. She had bequeathed the church some money, and the pastor in his wisdom convinced the deacons that uh, they should allow him to day trade the stocks. And so he's got all those screens because that's what he's doing. And he says in the paper, you know, my job really is more than just, I'm not just a preacher. I'm not just a pastor. I'm a CEO. I'm a financial manager. Well, long story short, guess who's not at that church any longer? But the church remains. The gospel remains. The word of God remains. In setting the stage, Luke wants us to understand that what really matters and what's really significant is that uh, God is faithful to his word and he is performing his word. And that's what his people need to remember. That's what they need to keep in mind. Secondly, we see then the kind of anatomy of these eternal things. It's easy to say that God's watching over his word. It's easy to say that God's word is eternal. It's easy to say that these are the things that we need to pay attention to. But the question is, well, what would that look like? How would I know? Because there's lots of good advice out there that we can kind of church up. And yeah, it's good for the Hallmark Channel. It kind of feels like Christianity. But how are we sure that it's something that's eternal? Well, we see first that the anatomy of eternal things requires people to repent. Look at verses 7 to 9. Let's read it again. He therefore said to the crowds, and by the way, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I love in the text that Corey, that, re, that Corey read for us, the context of that passage is, 
comfort, comfort ye my people, right? I'm going to send my messenger. It's going to be great. How does God's sent messenger begin his words of comfort? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And we're saying, how in the world is that? How is that comforting? Well, he's reminding them that what matters is not, uh, it's not their ethnic status. It's not their religious status. What matters is the state of their heart. What matters is their relationship with God. What matters is, are they able to turn from the ways in which they have sinned against and failed God and turn back to him? See, there is no comfort apart from God. And so his people cannot keep doing the same old thing and turning their back on God and rejecting God and living however they want to live and yet at the same time expect to receive God's comfort. See, John's audience has a problem that we have as well. We just automatically think that the Messiah is going to be on our side. That Jesus is with me. I mean, why wouldn't he be? I'm a good person. I voted for the right people. I, vote, I, I cheer for Nebraska and against Oklahoma and Texas. I'm a really good person. And so what happens is we look at Jesus and we say, okay, Jesus, here's the deal. Um, I need you to help me in one particular area of my life. My finances aren't what I, what I would like them to be. And so uh, let's slap a little Dave Ramsey on that and it'll be good, right? I don't parent the way I'd like to. Okay, well, here's, some, here's, here's a dose of Paul Tripp and a, and, a, and a dose of bare butt beaten, right? And you can, do there, you can be a good parent in that way. Or my marriage or any, you name it. And what we do is then we tack Jesus on as sort of the 13th step of a 12-step program. Because we automatically think, well, yeah, the Messiah is with us. Why wouldn't he be? And John and his message is bringing us comfort because he wants us to understand that, listen, there is no comfort from God apart from repentance. We actually are foolish and stupid and sinful enough to think that we should be trading seats with God. And the only right response to that is to repent. But we've convinced ourselves we're pretty okay. And the language then that John uses shocks us. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He gets right to the heart of it, doesn't he, in verse 8? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're going to see this in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to get to Jeremiah chapter 7, and Jeremiah is going to go into the temple, and he's going to say, listen, here's all the ridiculous stuff you've done. Here's all the ways you have broken the covenant. Here's all the way in which you have sinned against God. And the people are going to say, oh yeah, but we have the temple, the temple, the temple. 
And Jeremiah is going to say, and John the Baptist is going to say, it's not about ethnicity. It's about repentance. The second thing, then, that tells us about eternal things and helps us to identify eternal things is the question that the crowds ask upon hearing this glorious word of comfort that John brings them. Look at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? See, true repentance understands I can't just slap Jesus onto my life as I'm already living it and tell him, hey, Jesus, this is this area I need help in. If you'll just take care of this, I've got the rest under control. No, they understand that repentance means a change of life. It means a change of direction. And so there are ethical concerns that need to be addressed. Now, understand, this isn't, we're not talking about legalism here. We're not talking about God loves you better if you behave in a particular way. But being a Christian does mean that ethically your life should look a little different. And here's the really stunning thing is as you read through this, and this is a way in which, again, Luke is tipping his hand. Luke's letting us know things that are going to come. Who are the people who are responding favorably to this message? Tax collectors? and soldiers. And at that point, we step back and go, really? Really? The people who we hate because they're in cahoots with the Romans, but they're our own people, tax collectors, people like Matthew. And the soldiers who are the very representation of the might of Rome. Now, the tax collector will steal from you and the soldier will cuff you on the back of the head and take your money and give it to the tax collector. And yet, who is it who's responding rightly to John's call of repentance? It's the tax collectors. It's the soldiers. It's the people that you wouldn't expect. Part of the anatomy of eternal things means there are going to be people who are going to be involved in it that you wouldn't necessarily pick to be on your team. The early church is going to wrestle with this. In fact, Acts chapter 15 is all about trying to figure out, do you have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian? And one of the lessons early on from from Luke chapter 3 moving forward that we're going to see is the kingdom is going to be filled with people that you wouldn't expect to necessarily see there. And that's a good thing. Because you shouldn't really expect to see us there. So how is that possible? How is it possible that these people who you wouldn't think should be there ought to be there? Well, it's through the personal work of Jesus and it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. When they ask John, are you the Messiah? He's like, nope, I'm not. Listen, uh, I'm I'm baptizing you with repentance. But when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is coming and he's proclaiming God's judgment. Jesus comes and Jesus is God's judgment. There's a difference. John is telling us about the event that's going to happen. Whereas Jesus is the event that's going to happen. 
And when he mentions the Holy Spirit, we understand immediately as readers of the Bible that he's talking about the new covenant. This is not just about Israel 2.0, kind of the same, maybe a little different. No, this is about there's there's a new Israel. It's not a redo of the old thing. No, there's... There's a new covenant, there's a new Israel, and it's going to include the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on God's people. And it's a people who understand that the judgment that is talked about in the Old Testament, the judgment that is promised in the Old Testament, the person who's going to execute that judgment, as we're going to see in the book of Revelation, or as as we see in the book of Revelation, the person who executes God's judgment is God the Son. He both receives the judgment of God on the cross of Calvary. And he ultimately will be the one to execute that judgment. So how do you know if something is eternal? How do you know if something is indeed uh, not trendy and it's, it's biblical, it's right, it's good? Well, if it doesn't focus on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if it doesn't require the new birth of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't pass. There's lots of talk, uh, self-help folks and even productivity people uh, talk about you can practice mindfulness. You should sit down every day and journal and talk about the things that you're grateful for and thankful for, right? You can, you can be a grinder or you can be grateful. Now, to be clear, that's, that's not a bad idea. We should be more thankful for the things that we have in our life. And practicing thankfulness is not a bad thing. But I can be thankful and still not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I can be quote-unquote spiritual and still not have turned from my sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're going to talk about eternal things and if we're going to understand them, we need to understand they're about repentance, they're about a change in our lives, and they have to be focused on the person and work of Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling of his spirit. If they don't have those things... There's no comfort in them. There might be some temporary appeasement. But the kind of comfort that Corey read for us, the kind of comfort that is God-given, only comes through repentance, a change in life, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling of his spirit. Thirdly, here we go again. It's not just a great white Satan. A white snake song. Uh, here we go again. Is actually we're going to see that Israel is going to respond the same way to this new prophet as they did to the old prophets. John, because he's a prophet, goes to Herod uh, and reproves him for Herodias. In other words, uh, John or Herod decided that he wanted his brother's wife as his own. So. He orchestrated through the whole thing through a bunch of unsavory shenanigans. Takes Herodias, his brother's wife, as his own. John the Baptist goes to him and says, uh, no, you need to repent of that. And so there is conflict. There was conflict when the prophets in the Old Testament 
went to God's people and declared to them, you need to repent. You've broken the covenant. If you don't repent, God's going to judge you. There is conflict when John the Baptist goes to the supposed king of Israel and says to him, you need to repent. There will be conflict when Jesus comes into the scene and begins to tell his parables and begins to heal people. And he does things on the Sabbath that people don't think are kosher. And he talks about the temple and he talks about himself and he talks about the judgment of God. There will be conflict when the apostles go into the world. There will be conflict when Paul will go to places like Mars Hill and say, hey, I saw this statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about him. And there is conflict as Jesus promised for his church. When we go into the world, and declare that repentance is necessary, a change of life should accompany that repentance, and that it really is about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's not about tolerance. It's not about uh, equality. It's not about all the other things that get hoisted upon us, and we're told that those things are eternal. We're told often, well, hey, you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? And Luke reminds us in Luke 3, that the right side of, the, of history is always the side that reflects and is consistent and is obedient to the eternal word of the Lord. I love how the Old Testament reading ends that Corey read for us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. My friend John Sartell had a very powerful black and white photo in his study. His dad, John Sartell Sr., uh, served as a Navy chaplain during World War II. And the picture that John has in his office is a black and white photo of his dad overseeing the Lord's Supper on a troop transport ship. That ship was headed to Iwo Jima. And John keeps it because it reminds him that 80, by, this is just statistically, 80% of the folks in that picture would be either dead or wounded in the next three weeks. Those were the casualty rates. And it reminds, John said it reminds him of both the sense of urgency and also the sense of eternal significance of what's going on. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. This morning as we come to the table, we are reminded that in a world that's given to trendy, in a world that's given to what's hot right now, in a world that's given to what's trending, God gives us some very untrendy stuff. He gives us bread and grape juice and wine. Stuff's been around for millennium. It's not trendy, but it is eternal. And he reminds us that things of eternal significance were purchased for his people by his son.
And so this morning, we come. We come and we remember, we come and we celebrate, we come and we proclaim that this world is not all there is. There is another yet to come. And what matters in the world in which to come is not who's in power and not who has this kind of influence. What matters in the world to come are those things of eternal significance. Repentance. Bearing, uh, living a life that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. And the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the work of his spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, boy, for, forgive us because we, we're prone to trends. In fact, we're proud of them. Uh, but what you've given us is much more significant, but also much weightier. It requires more of us. It requires a life that we know from the get-go. You don't hide it from us. It requires that we be willing to live a life that's going to be at odds with the world around us. And oftentimes, uh, we love the applause of men and we fear men more than we fear you. So forgive us for that. But thank you this morning for this table. It's a table that your people have been observing for millennia. And it's a table that we will be observing until Christ returns. And then we're going to get the big table that will tell us that all of your promises are true. And everything that you set out to do, you accomplished. We thank you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.